Well, as always, every opportunity I get to get up here and share God's Word with you, I love it. It's my favorite thing to do in the world. I think I've said that before. I'll continue to say it. I love sharing God's Word, and I'm just so excited that I get to do it again with you today. I want to begin with by telling you um, just something we used to do. Uh, before coming on staff here, I was uh, lead pastor of a church, Life Discovery Church is the name of it. It's in McSherry's town, still there. I was there for 10 years, and uh, one thing we used to do every year, uh, usually during the summertime, is we'd do a sermon series, I would call it Pew Preachers. And the reason why I would call it that is because a few weeks before we did the series, we'd pass out little papers to everybody, and uh, we'd encourage everyone to write down on those papers things that they'd like to hear talked about from the pulpit, right? What's, what's a question you may have? What is something that's going on in our world today that you, wanna, you think would be good to hear about? Is there a certain passage you look at the Bible, like, what the heck is that all about? Can you tell me about it? You know, that kind of thing. So we did this for several years. I really, really enjoyed it. It was always one of my favorite things to do. And uh, one question has always stood out to me. I think one of the best questions that was ever asked as I was reading through those papers one day. And this, came, this happened during about 10 years ago. And it was during that time period where, where things started to get really uneasy racially in our country. If you remember um, the incident in Ferguson, Missouri, and uh, the rioting that followed that, and it, it, that incident kind of set off a series of events over the past decade in our country that have, have really just made things a little, little more uneasy than they had been in some time. And uh, one thing that came out of those problems that were occurring were groups that became known as social justice movement groups, right? So there was a lot of them. A lot of this was going on during that time period. And uh, you know, I'm not here today to make comment on any of those groups because there were all types of groups and doing it all sorts of ways and some peaceably and some with some violence. And it was just, it was, it was crazy, right? And things aren't always completely not crazy right now, but you know, it's, it was a little bit of a tumultuous period for a while there. And uh, the question I got, which I thought was a really great question, was what, what should the church's role be in these social justice movements? Like, should we be joining them? Should we be part of this? Is this a movement the church should get behind? And the reason why I thought that was a great question is because whatever, whatever methods these movements were doing, whether it was good, bad, ugly, whatever, you know, at the core, the core belief was, the core idea behind all of it was everybody should be treated equally. Something I think we can all agree with, right? You know, we all like that idea. That's a good idea, you know. And so the, and that's something I think the church believes strongly in, right? Everybody should be treated equally. Equal justice for all people, right? So that is, that's an idea that everyone can get behind, and, and it's just that some of these movements were kind of getting crazy with it. And, you know, what do we do with all of that? So I thought it was a fantastic question, and it was a really important one. As I was praying over that and thinking through that, God plopped something in my brain that day that I, I think over the past 10 years has, has he's developed and, and worked on with me. And, and I'm going to share some of these thoughts and things that God has brought to my mind over this past decade concerning this issue. But, but here's what began it all for me, and I just appreciated God so much for this idea. He, he said to me in that moment, he said, let's not forget that the church is a social justice movement. Not only is it one, it's the first and the greatest one of all time. It is the first, the church, or the family of God, because it goes before what we know as the New Testament church, right? All the way in I'm going to show you today how this began with Abraham, way back when, right? But way back in the day, God made it very clear that he would not be okay with one human being mistreating another. That God would never be okay with one human being believing that it's okay to oppress another, right? That all people should be treated equally. And God's kingdom, God's family, is, is really the first human movement to express that. Right Now, we live in a society today that I think it's really cool that for the first time in human history, I mean, look over the thousands and thousands of years of human history, and we have the honor and privilege, really, of living in a society where discrimination, oppression, injustice has really been legally ruled out. 
I mean, you look at the, the laws of the land we live in, and everyone is, according to the law, to be treated equally, right? Now, but then you look at us as the people that live in that land, trying to live that out, and it gets pretty ugly sometimes, right? So legally it's there, but as the people inside the country trying to work on that unity, ooh, it gets really ugly sometimes. It, uh, we're not doing a very good job of it. And so while behind the idea of you know, groups rising up and social justice groups and all that saying we need to fight for equal treatment for all people, I'm behind that idea I think, and I'm going to show you today, that the most important thing to remember is that, honestly, without God, it's just not going to happen, right? God is the one that unites us. God is the one that brings us into an equal family. And you can't, as our country shows over and over and over and over again, legislate equality. You just can't do it because there's, there's something missing. There's love missing. There's the love of God missing from that equation, and so I, I want to take you on a journey through Scripture, and I, and I mean Genesis to Revelation today, which is a little different than I usually do. I, I'm a big proponent of exegetical sermons, and what that means is you pick a passage and you preach the passage, right? I, I love doing that. Um, today I'm going to use a bunch of passages and go through Scripture, and it's more of a topical sermon. And I've always, I've always said this of preachers. Preachers should preach one topical sermon a year and then repent. So, you know... <laughs> So here's my one topical sermon, and I'll repent later for it. Um, but really, I want to show you how this isn't even just a New Testament concept. This is something that's been going on from the beginning, way back in Genesis. And God plants the seeds of this idea of my people will all be equal. It doesn't matter where you come from, what you look like, how you speak, what your culture is. You are all sons and daughters of the king, right? You are all brothers and sisters together, right? And he starts this right from the beginning, and it's, it's just so cool. So um, I, if you want to, you can turn to Genesis chapter 15, which is where we're going to start. Quickly, though, I'm going to make reference to Genesis 12, because this is where we really see the first little inkling of this. Genesis 12 is where God calls Abraham. And uh, because at this point, humanity has sinned, they've fallen away from God, and God sets in motion with Abraham a plan to redeem humanity, right? And he says to Abraham, basically, I've chosen you to do this through. But one of the things he says to Abraham is that all peoples, all families on earth will be blessed through you, right? So even though, Abraham, I'm choosing you and your offspring to do the work through, this is something that's going to be bigger than you and your offspring. It's going to extend to all humanity, right? So right from the beginning, we have that idea. But then in Genesis chapter 15 is where it starts, where the rubber really starts meeting the road, in my opinion. And uh, this is uh, the second time God has confirmed this promise or this covenant that he makes with Abraham. And in verse 13, <clears throat> it says this, The Lord said to Abraham, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens or foreigners in a land that is not theirs. We'll stop there for just a second. I'm going to come back to that word that's translated aliens or foreigners um, obviously, in this passage, God is telling Abraham about the time that in the future your offspring are going to be slaves in Egypt. Right? That's what God's referring to here. Um, but this, this word that God uses here, aliens, it's actually the Hebrew word ger. Can you guys say ger? ger. All right, I promise. It's the only Hebrew word I'm going to make you say today. But I made you say it because that word's going to be important, and I'm going to come back to that. So remember that, the word ger. This is the first time this, this Hebrew word is used in the Bible, and it's going to be used shortly again here soon. So he says, you'll be aliens in a land that is not theirs and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. I want to pause again on that word oppressed. There's a lot of really important word usages here, so I'm going to point out some words as we go along through this passage. They shall be oppressed or mistreated, depending on your translation. There's a couple different ways. Or afflicted. I think maybe the old King James uses the word afflicted. Um, this is the Hebrew word anah. And what that's referring to, it, it, this is a very strong word. And this is another time, this is the first word that this, used, this word is used in the Old Testament. And uh, this is actually the same word in Hebrew that's, word in, that's used in instances of rape, right? So this is, it's a very strong word. It means to just completely dominate another person, to completely by force take control of another human being, right? It's, it's a very, very strong word. So that's, that's important to remember that word there as well. And he says, but I will bring judgment 
on that nation. So right there, God is beginning to indicate into, to Abraham and in speaking into a world that's full of slavery, right? You understand, from the beginning of humanity, we, we often talk about slavery as, a, as an American problem, and it was. It was a huge problem in America, but it has existed from the beginning of time with humanity. People groups have been oppressing other people groups. It's just the way it's been. It, it's, it's been horrible, right? But God's right here saying, you're going to be afflicted. You're going to be oppressed. You're going to be completely controlled, but I'm going to judge them for doing that to you because that's not okay, right? So God right off the bat saying, I'm not okay with this arrangement. The rest of the world may be, but not with me. That's not going to fly in my family, right? So I'm going to judge on that nation, um, bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So God is setting up a scenario where he says, I'm going to judge, bring judgment on the nation that oppresses And I'm going to give great things, great blessings to the oppressed, right? So he's setting up this scenario that I'm I'm for the oppressed. I'm for the people that that are pushed down and hurt, right? And then we come to the next story. It jumps immediately, just literally a few sentences later. Uh, We come into the next story, and we're introduced to another person named Hagar. So it's the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. You may be familiar with this story, but I'm not sure you've ever heard this side of the story, or why I believe this story is included in Scripture exactly where it is. Right after this, this idea of you're going to be slaves, you're going to go into Egypt, and all this kind of stuff, and then boom, right into the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Um, so the story goes like this. So we're going to move to chapter 16 now, verse 1. It says, now Sarai, who eventually becomes named Sarah, and Abram, who God eventually changes his name to Abraham, Um, Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And her name's going to be important. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. Um, But did you know, if if you, uh, this is the first instance in the entirety of Scripture where we have uh, an instance of slavery, right? And it's a Hebrew enslaving an Egyptian, Right? God just got done saying that the Egyptians are going to enslave the Hebrews, but what do we have here? A Hebrew enslaving an Egyptian. All right, I'm going to give you a little spoiler here for this story that's coming up. This is not a good story for Abraham and Sarah, what we're about to tell. Okay? This, is, this is not good on their behalf. And you're going to see how this unfolds, that they were in the wrong in this story, and God lets them know it. Okay? It's, it's the way this story is told, especially some of the words that are used in Hebrew, I'm going to bring out. You're going to see this is an ugly story on their behalf. And why? keep this in mind, why this is so important is God just got done calling Abraham. You are my chosen one. I'm going to use you to bless everyone. I'm going to do incredible things through you. You're, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I'm going to save your people. I'm going to be their deliverer. I'm going to bless everyone on earth through you. And then immediately we jump into a story where Abraham and Sarah are not okay with how they're acting. And God reveals that. So, so what, does that, what does that say to me right off the bat? Is I think it's God saying, just because you're one of my children, just because I've chosen you, still doesn't give you the right to treat someone else terribly. And I'm going to side with that person every time. I don't care if you're my chosen one, right? I don't care if you're Abraham. So the thing I love about the Bible, you may have noticed this, is it doesn't sugarcoat anything, right? It doesn't try to present its characters as superhumans. You know, you read, you read these other mythologies from other societies and, you, you know, you get these superhuman, greater than whatever people. And when you read the Bible, you just get ugly human beings, <laughs> right? And I don't know about you, that gives me a little hope. Like if God can still use them, I guess he can still use me. So I, I love this about this, that we get the good, the bad, and the ugly from all of them, including Abraham. And this one's pretty ugly. So Sarai says to Abraham, moving on here in verse 2, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Okay. Now, in today's standards, this is, this is pretty awful. Because really what's happening is Hagar doesn't have a choice in this. Sarah can't have kids and says, I want you to take the slave girl. She doesn't have a choice in this matter. You're going to impregnate her, and then through her we'll have kids. So right off the bat, that's pretty forceful. 
However, this, this was a common practice in this time period. Um, you know, if, if the woman of the house, the mistress of the house could not bear children, oftentimes a slave girl was used to bring children into the household. It was a common practice. It just was what it was. Um, so it says, and Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah, like a good husband, always do that. And uh, so after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband, Abraham, as a wife. He went into Hagar, she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So I'm going to spend a, a little bit of time here on this, breaking this down a little bit, because this is another place, this part where it says she looked on Sarai with contempt. I'm not a huge fan of that translation. Some translations even put it that um, she started to mistreat Sarah. But as I was looking at this in the original language, as my nerdy self likes to do, um, I noticed that the part that's translated um, obtain children. So going back to when verse, what is it, verse 2, when Sarah said that I may obtain children or have children by her, the first thing I notice is that is actually the Hebrew word bana, which is the word for to build, right? Usually if you're building a building, this is the word that you would use. And it's used in the passive sense. So literally what Sarah is saying is, I want to be built up through her. That's, that's the literal translation. I want to be built up through her. So what was going on here? Why is that word used? Because in this time period... If you were a wife that could not provide children, you were lesser, right? You obtained status by having children. You were important because you could give your husband a son. As ugly as it was, and we think in our society, like, that's awful, right? But that's the way it was. So when Sarah was unable to provide her husband a son, she, that lessened her. That lessened her importance. So literally what she's saying is we're going to use Hagar as a surrogate mother that's going to bring children into this family, and through her, I will be built up. I'll get back to the status that I want to be at, right? It's, it's all about status, is this what it comes down to. I want to be in the place that I believe I should be at. I want to be built up by her. So then when we get to the part where it says, Hagar, in verse 4, saw she was conceived, and she looked with contempt on Sarai, or she even mistreated her sometimes at use. This is the Hebrew word kalal, which actually means to be small or insignificant. It really doesn't have anything necessarily to do with contempt. And the literal Hebrew phrase that's used here is, um, Sarai became small in Hagar's eyes. That's the literal phrase that's used. She became small in her eyes. So really, you see this all is about status. Right? This is about, from the beginning, Sarai wanted to be built up. She wanted to be the important person that she was supposed to be. But when Hagar had the child, remember, in that society, if you could bear children, this is a good thing. She, became to th- she began to think better of herself right, and think less of Sarai because she was the barren woman. Like She's the woman that couldn't provide the children. So when she looked at Sarai, she began to see her as lesser. And this made Sarai angry, very angry. And you're going to see how angry in just a second here. So really, this has everything to do with, with status. This has to do with Sarai wanting to be elevated over Hagar, wanting to be elevated over all the other slave girls that they may have had at this time. But the opposite began to happen. So then verse 5, Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. Okay, so what she means by that, this is, this is your job to fix this. Right? I want you to take care of this. This is, this is your responsibility now. And uh, so this whole Hagar issue that I'm having, this problem, this wrong, you need to take care of it. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt, or I became smaller in her eyes, is what that literal phrase is. I became smaller in her eyes. And then she says, this is the really important part. May the Lord judge between you and me. So really, essentially what she's saying is, may God judge between this wrong, this Hagar situation and me. Or in other words, may God judge between Hagar and me. That's really what she's saying. I want God to judge who's in the right here. Yeah, you're going to see who God's going to side with here in just a second. You may have figured it out already. 
But Sarai just laid it out. She said, may God judge between you and me. Remember how in the last, the last chapter when we read that when the oppressors, when the Egyptians oppressed the Hebrews, what would God do? He would judge the oppressor. So we've already known that when God is faced with a situation of oppressors and oppressed, God will pass judgment. Right? So Sarai is calling for God's judgment here. So we're, we're, that theme is continuing from that last statement. So Abram said to Sarah, he said, your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Um, the literal phrase there is do, do the good in your eyes to her. Um, and then it says Sarai dealt harshly with her and she ran away. That dealt harshly, guess what? That's that same word for affliction that I mentioned before, that ana word, that same Hebrew word that was described in the previous one about how the Egyptians were going to treat the Hebrews, right? That that same word that's used for rape in, in Hebrew, that very strong word, that's what Sarah began to do to her slave girls. She began to ana her. She began to, to, to afflict her, to mistreat her, to forcibly hold her down. Really strong word, really strong word. We've already established God's not okay with one human being treating another human being that way. And now Sarai's doing it. So it got so bad that Hagar had to run away. She got to the point where she had to run away. It got so bad. Well, after Hagar's running in the wilderness, it says the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. So be fair, go back and, and be the person you're supposed to be. The angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. That is the exact same promise that God had given to Abraham for the promised child, right? That your offspring will be so multiplied they cannot be counted. And now he's extending that promise to Hagar. That is the blessing that I'm going to give you. And the angel of the Lord said to her, and this is where it gets huge, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. There's that same word again, only in the noun form. He has given heed to your affliction. I've heard your affliction. I want you to call him Ishmael. The, the word Ishmael means God hears, right? So Shema, Hebrew word for hear, and then El, Hebrew word for God. God hears. So he says, I want you, so right there, we have just learned what God's judgment was. Right? God said, Sarah said, may God judge between me and you. And God says to Hagar, I choose you because it's not okay. I've heard your affliction. I've heard the way you've been treated, and I'm going to bless you, right? I'm going to give you many, many children, <clears throat> and, but just return and know that I will take care of you. That word there, I've given heed to your affliction. I've heard your affliction. That is the exact same phrase that God speaks to Moses in the burning bush when he says, I've heard the affliction of my children back in Egypt, right? And I want you to go free them. It's the same phrase. There's so many parallels between the Hagar story and the Egyptian deliverance story. It's not even funny. The, the language, the wording, the, it's, it's, so, it's so crazy. And what we have is a reversal, though. In one case, it's, it's Hebrews uh, oppressing an Egyptian. In the other case, it's Egyptians oppressing Hebrews. And in both cases, God sides with the oppressed. He's letting us know in no uncertain terms that I will always side with those who cry out to me who are being hurt by others, right? This is what my family will be all about. And here's the kicker of the whole thing. This, is, this, this brings it all together, in my opinion. And I told you to remember, who can still remember? What was the Hebrew word for alien? Yell it out. Oh, some people remembered. I'm so proud of you guys. So, ger, okay? Now, in Hebrew, oh, more Hebrew lessons. I'm sorry, but it's so important to this passage. In Hebrew, if you want to put the word the in front of something, like this is a podium, right? If I say the podium as opposed to just podium, you put the word the in front of it. In Hebrew, you prefix a sound that goes like this, ha. That's the. That's the in Hebrew. So, what is the alien? It's hager. You picking up on this yet? Uh-huh. Hagar's name is literally the alien. 
That's her name. Hagar, right? That is her name. She is the foreigner, the alien. That's her name. So that's the kicker of the whole thing. It's like in your face right there what God is trying to say to us. But then, I want to fast forward, so here, continuing on the journey here, to a passage in Exodus. I think we have that up here in Exodus 22. And this is actually a, um, a phrase that's then repeated many, many times. So this is now after the, uh, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. God brings them out of bondage. And then God makes a covenant with them, right, at Mount Sinai. And he, he sets down laws and how they should, how they should live their, their lives under this new covenant with him. And one phrase that is repeated over and over and over again is this one right here. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien. That's that word, ger. You shall not oppress an alien, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. That's repeated. As far as I'm aware, that's that's how many times I could find it. And I believe that command is repeated more than any other in in the covenant. You will not oppress aliens that are living in your land. Right? God is saying, in my family, right, if you have outsiders living here, you will not oppress them. You will treat them with love and respect as you treat yourselves. Bring up the next verse. And this is the Leviticus one, the one time it's repeated in Leviticus. I think, there we go. So listen to this one. When an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Um, we're familiar with you should love your neighbor as yourself, right? We all know that one. Jesus said those two things. What's the two greatest commandments? Jesus said, love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. You may be aware that love your neighbor as yourself is a quote from the book of Leviticus. That's an Old Testament quote. And it actually comes from a little earlier in Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And then so you read Leviticus 19, God, God says that one, love your neighbor as yourself, and he gives some other laws. And then he gets down to this alien section and he says, love, your, love the alien as you love yourself, the foreigner that lives among you. So he's letting his people know, again, with no uncertain terms, what it means to be a part of my family is that you don't just love those of your own tribe or your own culture as you love yourself. You love everyone as you love yourself. You love everyone as you love yourself. Now, disclaimer here, I just want to say so there's no confusion. I'm not trying to make political statements with this because I know, <laughs> I know, um, you know, undocumented aliens and it's a big political issue. And I'm not trying to make a political statement here today. I'm just talking about how we treat other people with respect. Okay, clear? In case any of Because no matter what you say from the pulpit, sometimes people are like, you got too political today. No, this isn't a political statement. <laughs> I'm just talking about how we treat people in the kingdom of God, right? You with me on that one? You all okay with that? Okay, cool. So no, politi- no political statements here. Um, just how we treat others. God says, this is what my family is all about. This is how you treat each other. doesn't matter who they are or where they're from. And this is completely opposite from how the world worked in that time. Completely the opposite. As you saw with Abraham and Sarah, if there was a foreigner... And you could, you enslaved them. That's how the world worked back then. You know, we think of slavery in America here as more of a skin color thing, and it was. But that's not really how slavery was for, for back in the ancient Near East. It was basically, if you're not from around here, and I can somehow capture you in warfare, you get to be my slave now. Like, that's just how it worked. And they were yours to do with as you pleased. That's just how the world worked back then. And this is the first instance in all of human history where we have a statement like this. We're saying, just because you have an alien living in your land doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want with them. Doesn't mean you get to treat them however you please. God takes it to this high level and he says, you're going to treat them as if they were actually one of your own citizens. That's how you're going to treat them in my family. Powerful statements, especially thinking about when it was said and what the way of the world was at that time. God's making strong statements about his family. So way back in the book of Genesis, God picks no bones about it, telling us who he is and what it means to be a part of his family. And then he gets back on later in years. And I wanna, I'm going to pull out a couple passages from Isaiah that I love so much. And as time progresses, 
he begins to get back to that idea that he started with in Abraham, saying, through you, all peoples will be blessed, right? He starts to pick up back on that. And, and in the book of Isaiah, we see that illustrated in a few different ways. And it's usually using the idea of light. He's, this, this, this concept in Isaiah starts to come through that you, my people, are going to be a light to the entire world, right? And I love this one from Isaiah 49, he says, he says this, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. Right, so this is talking about the, the time of that Israel was in exile in the land of Babylon. And talking about the servant of God and what the servant is going to do. And he's saying right now that if all you want to do is just restore the nation of Israel... That's too small of a thing. I'm thinking bigger than that right now. And he moves on. He says, I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Right? So there's this, through the prophetic books, we really begin to see this idea that days are coming where this thing's going to be globalized. Right? Where the family of God is no longer going to be just a nation of Israel. But the nation of Israel is going to be used to spread a light that's going to go to all peoples. And if your thinking is, oh, I just want this nation to be put back together, that's too small of a thing. That's not what I'm doing here, right? From the beginning, you've seen, I love the alien. I love everybody, right? And we're going to get to a point now where your light will spread. But a little later in Isaiah, he, said, he talks about how we're going to spread that light. Isaiah 58 says this. He says, and the whole chapter is fantastic. Read it, by the way, but this is a little snippet from it. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the figure, the speaking of evil, if you offer food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, there's that word again, satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom uh, be like the noonday. So he's saying, I want you to be a light to the nations. How do you begin spreading that light? By freeing the oppressed, by loving, by extending justice, equal justice for all people in the family of God. Then your light will spread in an incredible way. That's how you break that light forth. That's how that happens. And you, my people, are going to be the ones to do it here on earth. And so I read that And I wonder if sometimes because we live, going back to the idea of our country, our society that we live in, because we live in a society that is free, right? And its pledge says liberty for all, right? Like that's that's the idea, liberty and justice for all, right? Because we live in that kind of society, I wonder if sometimes we as the church have taken a back seat to our country, right? Believing that our country will take care of freeing people of making sure everyone is treated and loved equally. Whereas we, the people of God, are supposed to be in the front seat of that movement. We're the ones that show people that you can be loved and treated equally. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. This is the family of God where we're all brothers and sisters of Christ and we are all just sinners saved by grace, right? Like we have the same God. We have just the same thing going on. We are to be on the front seat. We're to be driving that train. I just, like I said, I wonder if too often... We as the church, because of the country we live in, which is good, right? But we just kind of take a back seat and say, yeah, we'll let the, our country take care of that. Again, I ask, how's that going? Yeah, yeah, it's not so good, right? Not so good. Now, granted, the church has screwed this up pretty royally over the years too, you know? It breaks my heart to think that 200 years ago, the Bible was actually used to defend slavery in America. Like, that kind of stuff just sickens me, you know? When it's so obviously not there. <laughs> like it, it's so obvious that God's like endlessly like free the oppressed. He's on the side of the, like endlessly. That's just how God is, right? Throughout the entirety of scripture. But he's looking forward to this time. So back to the, back to the progression. Look, your, your light is going to break forth. Now, that first one I read from Isaiah, Isaiah 49, that Paul actually quotes that in the book of Acts. So chapter 13, I'm sure Josh will, I'll get to that sometime in the next couple years. Um, so <laughs> loving the series, by the way, it's awesome. It's so good. I hope you're enjoying this Acts series. So, but yeah, Acts chapter 13, Paul actually quotes this, like as saying, like, this is what we're doing, right? And he quotes it at a very interesting time in, in his, in his uh, 
uh, his, his missions uh, trips, his missions trips that he goes on. It's actually at a place, at the beginning of, of Paul's missions trips, he would pretty much exclusively speak to the Jewish people. He'd go out, he'd go into the synagogues, address the Jewish people, usually get beat up or kicked out of town, and then go on and talk to the next town about the Jewish people. And eventually, he says, you know what we're doing here? We're doing this. And he quotes Isaiah 49. That means I'm going to start talking to the Gentiles. And then he switches and starts. That's like, that's like the big switch. And he says, from now on, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. Because way back when in, in Isaiah, that's what God said we're supposed to be doing anyway. Right? So that's exactly how Paul uses this verse of saying that I'm just supposed to be a light to the rest of the world. And if you guys won't listen, they will. Right? And so that's, that's the, the context in which that's used. But again, talking about the book of Acts, just a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Josh talked on Acts chapter 2 with the falling of the the Holy Spirit. And I want to point something out to you from that passage that I think works into this progression so beautifully of how God has been building up to this, right? Like right right from the the meager beginnings, we have just these little inklings of God's being like, I'm not going to stand up for oppression. Like I will always side with the oppressed. Right? And then this idea of you will spread a light to the nations. And how you spread it is by freeing the oppressed, by loving people, right? by breaking bondages. Like that, that's how you make this work. right? And then we get to Acts chapter 2. And uh, verse 5 makes a really uh, bold claim. So this is as the 120 were gathered and they're praying. And it says, now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. So, first of all, I want to say this is a little bit of hyperbole that's being used here. There probably were not people in the town from every nation under heaven. Like, that just wasn't true, right? Okay, but the the verse is not going for so much historical accuracy as it is to we're trying to make a point here, right? And it's supposed to open our ears. Every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven, right, is, is being represented here. So something's about to happen, and it's big, okay? And so all of a sudden, then the crowd from all these various places, they begin to hear these people praying in their own native language, right? Even though these are Galilean Jews, and they, they shouldn't know all these languages, as they hear them, they hear these languages. And then, in, and then it starts in verse 9, and it starts to list the different nations. And it goes through, and it's... it's uh, you know, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and parts of, you know, it goes on and on and on. There's 16 different listings there. Why does it do that? Why, does it, why can't it just say there's people from all over the place? But it goes through and it just lists like nation after nation after nation. After, it just like lists all these things because a point is still trying to be proven here, right? Just the way it's written. If you've been in my Bible study on Wednesday nights, you know I love to say sometimes the Bible, it's not always about what it says, but how it says it, Right? How it says it sometimes is very important, and this is one of those cases. So after all this is happening, right, we're, we have this hyperbolic statement, people from every nation under heaven, all these different people groups are listed, right? And then they ask this question. They say, what could this mean? <laughs> right? Right? The final verse there, verse 12. What does this mean? Well, I don't think Peter was even fully aware, because God had to remind him a few chapters later exactly in, verse, in chapter 10 what was going on here. But I'll tell you what was going on here. This is God saying, it's going global. This is it. This is that time I've been talking about. This is the time when my family goes global. And this language being spoken that you've heard today in all these different nations that has touched every nation under heaven means that this word is now for everyone. Right? And that's one of the things that came out of what the, the languages that were spoken in that day. And one of the things this text is trying to say, my family's now going global. Right? And it's time for this family's light to break forth and to loose the chains across this planet. Right? Beautiful thing, what was happening here in this moment. And the book of Acts tells that story. And it tells the story of that struggle. You read through the book of Acts, and they had to figure this out. Like, what does it mean? We're going from the family of God, which used to be just Jewish, to now including all these Gentiles and all these different races and cultures and languages. And this was shock to their system. They had to figure out, what do we do with this? Right? Even so much that God even had to give Peter a vision. Right? He lowered, you remember, he lowered this, this sheet down that was full of all these unclean animals that in Jewish cultures they weren't allowed to eat. And God says, get up and eat. 
And Peter's like, no, you've told me not to eat these things. These are unclean. And then God says, don't call something unclean that I have made clean. So Peter wakes up puzzled. Like, he still doesn't know. He's like, God, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, he's like, I have no idea what you just, what was that all about? And then all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door, and it's from a Gentile home saying, come and tell us about God. Right? And then Peter finally figured it out. Like, oh, okay. And I love a few verses later, after Peter goes to Cornelius' home, visibly watches the Holy Spirit fall on the Gentiles the way it had fallen on the Jews already. And he goes and reports it back to the people of Jew, uh, to the Jews in Jerusalem. And I love the comment he says. He says, "Who was I to stand in the way of what God was doing?" Right? Like Peter's just like, "God's doing it. He's making it global. He's he's just pushing it across this planet. Who am I to stand in God's way?" And this just builds and builds, and there's struggles, and, and we're still struggling it, struggling with it to this day to figure out how do we become one family. Right? How do we become this one beautiful, loving family under God? But I just love the way it then ends. I told you I'd take you from Genesis to Revelation. And hey, I did it in less than three hours. Are you happy? So, okay. <laughs> Revelation chapter 7. So we have these images, these powerful images that John is putting down on paper here. And I love this one. It's probably my favorite image that you can read throughout this entire book. And it starts in verse 9 of Revelation 7. And it says, After this I looked... And there was a great multitude that no one could count. Do you recognize that, that language, right? That language that, that God originally spoke over Abraham you're, and, and to Hagar, right? An uncountable multitude. It's that same language, right? right? That no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. What a beautiful picture of the final, the final throne room of God, what God's vision is, what God's, what God, why God's doing this. And then we, we jump down a few verses into first verse and to verse 14, and one of the elders of heaven is describing to John who these people are. He says, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. The one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. Right? It's this concept of we are here because he takes care of us, because he loves us. And it just gets better. They will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So do, I mean, do you see how this comes full circle here? Right? This, this is what God originally meant when he said to Abraham, all peoples are going to be blessed through you. Right? This is, this is why God sided with Hagar, the foreigner, over the Hebrew people, over God's chosen one, Abraham. This is why God chose with the, you know, side with the, because she was being hurt and she cried out to God. And God heard her affliction. Right? And... As Pastor Josh has shared so beautifully in focusing on the kingdom of God about how we as the church, it's not just about let's get saved and get right with God. Fantastic first step, right? But it's also about now we get the chance to live out in the truths of the kingdom of God. And this is one of my favorite truths of the kingdom of God is that we get to live as a loving family. It doesn't mean we're going to get it right every time. <laughs> you know? It, it, part of being a loving family is grace, right? I think that's another thing God has shown us. His grace over and over and over and over and over. Did I say enough overs? I probably can't say enough overs. But he's shown us his grace so many times. I think one of the reasons for that is so that we can then show grace to one another. Right? This is, we're not always going to get it right. We're going to hurt each other. Right? I, I love to say to people that are, that are sometimes new in the church, I'm just saying, if I haven't hurt you yet, just wait. I'll get there. <laughs> you know, like, we're all going to hurt each other eventually. It's going to happen. So this isn't some unrealistic dream. But right now, this, this part of the kingdom is possible. Like, we can start seeing the fruit of this. 
the fruit of, of love that cares for one another, love that, that break, helps break bondages that people find themselves in. The church can do this better than any movement in our society could ever hope to do. So coming back to this, and if uh, the worship team wants to come back up, I'll leave you with this right here, is that I think the craziness that is going on in our society and the tension that we seem to have racially, culturally right now, um, although it's hard to see, it's hard to watch, and it's, sometimes it almost feels like we're going backwards as a society, I want to encourage you on some level, I'm trying to word this the right way here because I don't want, to, I don't want this to come across wrong, but on, on, some, on some level, we as Christians, that should almost excite us. Don't take that the wrong way. Here's what I mean by that. It should excite us in that we can look at it and say, we have the answer to that problem. Like, this, that we, get a ch- we get a chance to really shine because there's something pretty cool happening in our society right now, and it's that we're desiring, our society is desiring equality. It's desiring equal justice for all. It wants to see that. It just doesn't know how to make that happen. And, and we get the opportunity to say, we, we're the solution to that problem, right? We get to be the answer. So although it's really easy right now to look at all this craziness in our society, it's really easy as the church to look at it and just, just, just look down on it and just be like, oh, the world's going to hell, man. It's just getting so bad out there. It's so easy to look at it that way, right? But I want to encourage you guys, let's look at it and say, look at, this, look at the burden that sin has put upon these people. We can, we can help release this burden, right? What does Jesus say? Take, take on my yoke. Take my burden as light, right? He's, he says, just take it upon and I'll, I'll give you rest. And, and so I look out at our society today and I just, I see one that's so burdened by sin. So we, we know what it means to be weighed down by sin. You know that feeling. Our society is just oh, struggling with that so hard in this regard right now. And, and we can offer rest. We, we, we can give this. We are poised so beautifully as the church right now to do something fantastic in our society. And it has to just to do with the love of God. Come into a family where we are all sinners saved by grace. Come into a family where I can call you brother and sister. And what that will mean will, be, will just be amazing. It's just what we have to offer is so cool. Can we do that today? So the two ways I can think of encouraging you guys, myself included, to respond to this is, number one, maybe you're sitting here today and you, you wouldn't consider yourself part of the family of God. Well, I'll be the first to tell you, like I already said, this family isn't perfect. We mess up a lot. But this is a family with God at its core. It's possible for us to truly love each other on an level that's impossible without God. I welcome you into this family. Accept God and experience love like you've never experienced it before. If you are part of this family, I want to encourage you to look at this problem in our society with new eyes. With new eyes. See yourself as the solution. It's too easy as an American to just sit back and say, somebody should do something about that because somebody usually does somewhere. The church should never talk like that. God, how can I do something about that? We are the first and the greatest social movement, social justice movement ever to exist. Let's be that for our world today. Lord, we just thank you so much for your love and acceptance of every single person in this room, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter what we look like no matter what language we speak, no matter what our experience has been, no matter what we've had done to us, no matter what we've done to others, your love is incredible. Your love is accepting. We are all sinners saved by your grace, Lord Jesus, and that makes us family. God, I just pray for anyone in this room that has been struggling with that, that they will find the rest that you have to offer. They will find your love, your love, your justice, your freedom, Lord Jesus, today in your family. God, may we advance that kind of kingdom, a kingdom that brings in all people and encourages.
incredible global movement, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus. If you're sitting here today, if everyone just keep, continue to keep their eyes closed, just have a private moment between each person and God. If you're sitting here today and you say, you know what, I don't know that I am part of God's family, but it sounds like that's something I want to be a part of. I want to accept Christ into my life. I want to know what that kind of love and acceptance means. I've looked for it in the world and I've been hurt time and time again, but I believe the family of God can help me see what that is today. If that's you, just slip up your hand. All right, thank you. Maybe you're sitting here today and that second challenge I gave you, and you say, you know what? I've struggled with looking at the world and just seeing horrific stuff. But now I just, I want new eyes. I want God to give me new eyes today so that I can look at the world and start saying, we're the answer to that. And I want to, on an unparalleled level, unparalleled level, begin to show God's love, justice, and mercy to this world. If that's you, just slip your hand up today. You're going to get better at that. Lord, thank you. You've seen these responses. And again, we just pray for your help because without you, this is impossible. Without you, this isn't going to work. This kind of love is a fruit of your spirit, Lord Jesus. So Holy Spirit, come in us and show us how to be the type of people you desire your kingdom to be. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Well, the worship team is going to play a closing song here. I'm going to encourage um, prayer, prayer team members to come on up. If you'd like prayer in this, maybe you're sitting to, here today and for whatever reason, I mean, you can give up for prayer for anything, but specifically I'm thinking maybe you have been hurt by this kind of thing the world, you have felt injustice towards you. You've felt oppression towards you. Maybe it's even come from the church. That's possible. Like I said, we're humans. But today, you just, you need to feel some some of God's love today. You need to work through that. God would love to meet you on that level today. Maybe today you feel guilty of being the oppressor. I mean, this is this is real today. We, we've probably, most of us have been on both ends of this. But wherever it is you find yourself on this spectrum, if you just would like to pray and work through this with God a little bit, come on up during this song. Thank you for listening. You can find us online at BethelAG.com or on Facebook at Bethel Assembly of God, Littlestown, Pennsylvania. Our services are also live streamed every Sunday on our YouTube channel, Bethel AG, Littlestown, Pennsylvania.